0: hi i'm katie allen i'm a pediatrician turned politician and i'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least the answer is simple i want to get inside the tent to help make our future better along the way i've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works i want to share some of that experience with you And through my podcast you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from join me dr katie allen on an apple a week hopefully you'll learn as much as i do well i'm delighted to welcome this week's guest to my podcast Dr Rachel David, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Private Healthcare Australia. And I'm really excited about this topic because as a doctor and someone who's been working in both the private and public healthcare system, I believe we have one of the best healthcare systems in the world because of that really interesting and and important balance between private and public healthcare. Um, Private healthcare has so often provided innovation um, and best care practice Uh, that helps helps optimise our healthcare system while our public healthcare system provides universal safety net and support for every Australian. So it's wonderful to welcome you to my um, podcast this week, Rachel.
1: Thanks, Katie. It's great to be talking to you as well as a medical specialist. I know that you would have seen firsthand um, the benefits of having a mixed private and public system. So I'm really happy to be talking to you today.
0: Um, I'm really interested in the fact that you, um, as an organisation, which uh, has a purview over um, private health insurance companies, uh, a recent report that's called There's No Place Like Home. And I know you've been a doctor for 10 years and you've now been CEO of Private Healthcare Australia for seven and a half years. So you've led your organisation through COVID and, like a lot of leaders, you've seen both the pain that that has caused uh, for people in the system but also the ability for um, people and organisations to pivot, that, that word of 2020, was uh, to embrace new technologies. And through COVID, we saw people taking up private healthcare like never before, and also using new forms of technology like never before, including telehealth. And I'm very proud of the contribution I made to making sure that we were employing tele- telehealth early um, and frequently. But with Private Healthcare Australia, looking at better cover, better access and better care, which are a great, is a great mandate. Um, I know that your report really speaks to the fact that we've really got to make sure that we embrace the opportunity for change going forward. So, so my question, my first question to you is, you know, where do you see healthcare going? What does this report provide for us in terms of a roadmap going forward for private healthcare and its place in the Australian healthcare system? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Well, look, I think there were some very um, strong trends in healthcare that were actually um, enhanced and hastened by the circumstances we found ourselves in in the pandemic. So what this report focuses on is convenience and better quality of care by delivering it in non-hospital settings. So people will still get the same types of people delivering their care but it will be in a location that's more convenient for them and thereby also being safer and of at least equivalent quality. And what I mean by safer is I think a lot of people have learned through the course of the pandemic that, you know, sometimes being in hospital for a prolonged period of time is not the safest place to be, particularly when there's a high risk of contracting an infectious disease or having an accident because you're in an environment which is under stress and um, you might not have the same degree of supervision or familiarity with, uh, with your surroundings.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say as a doctor, we, we were sort of always trained as paediatricians to get kids home to their families because that was the best place for them to recover. And, you know, there used to be this sort of running joke, it's changed now, luckily, but, you know, the kids would come in with croup and leave with gastro. Um, and having been on the board of Cabrini Hospital, I know that, the, you know, that the the organisation watches infection control like a hawk because hospitals, unfortunately, can become reservoirs of multi-drug resistant you know, um, conditions. And so, uh, and there is also... The difficulty of managing people as they're getting older in places they're not familiar with. So, people falling out of bed at night because they're trying to go to the loo and stripping over the IV line, and just, you know, not being in a place where they feel their strongest and their best. And so, of course, in pediatrics, the, the pediatrics is where the innovation started about um, out of home hospital care. And um, I know cancer as well has followed SUSH, and there's now more chronic disease management um, in the home. But, hospital in the home or out of home out of hospital care i should say is an area that's really emerging not just here in australia but right around the world um and i know in your report it talks also particularly about elective surgery so i was wondering if you give a bit of background to the patient um the patient experience about you know getting home obviously is a great place to be and there's and there's some quality of care um, aspects of, you know, less likely to get infections or have an accidental fall. But are they getting the support they need in the home? And how does that happen for someone who has private health care?
1: Well, look, I think we, just to take a step back I think we need to look at the types of people that have private health insurance at the moment Um, and we've seen a huge surge in membership as people have struggled to access surgery and mental health care in the public sector as a consequence of the pandemic so we've seen about 860,000 people join a health fund around Australia over the last two and a half years, to three years. And, you know, we're talking about some, you know, this has really been driven by professional women and younger people who are busy. They're looking after kids, ageing parents. They're trying to earn a living and keep a roof over their head. They're not, it's not the same cohort of people we might have been talking about, say, 30 years ago who are older, and you know they retired at in their early 60s and then they might have had surgery and then lived a few more years so but now we're talking about people who are in the workforce and need to return to the workforce and convenience is a huge issue for them and around the world we've seen other countries that have equivalent economies to Australia but countries like Holland the US and the UK perhaps advance the the convenience and the the convenience issue a little bit more um, and introduce some new models of care which not only um, are getting the person back to work earlier but they're allowing them to recover in their own environment so they're not exposed to long trips in and out of hospital where, you know, their families can't support them, you know, car parking fees and the other costs associated with that. And they're making better use of the available technology to actually help people and centre the care around the patient rather than the institution. And we're not saying that you know, hospitals have a fantastic role in Australian society, but um, that institutional environment has too often been the centre of what we're trying to offer and not the patients themselves. So what we've looked at Some models, some specific archetypes and models of care which we could adopt faster in Australia that would help with um, both the cost of care and convenience for patients. And some of those things are um, short stay surgery offered at a lower cost and a low out of pocket, but with some good. Wraparound services so that it can be so that people can have their surgery in a day hospital or the one overnight stay and then return home with the appropriate supports from physiotherapy um, and pain relief and so forth. We've looked at also in, in some detail some of the mental health models, particularly around substance use disorder and eating disorders, where a prolonged stay in hospital might actually do more harm than good. For some of these patient segments, where it's it certainly, you know, for the acute um, refeeding phase for eating disorders or the acute detox, um, medical detox for um, alcohol use disorder, for example, the person might need to be in hospital so that they ha- can be supervised for 24 to 48 hours during that period. But for much longer than that, if you're talking about weeks, you're, you know, you're putting people in an unfamiliar environment where they're not going to get used to. Dealing with you know some of their issues and difficulties um, in their own environment with all of its triggers, um, they're going to be with other people who um, could model poor behaviour that they could you know enter into you know kind of competitive um, behaviours with and so forth. Um, And furthermore, there there are ways in which that environment can be unsafe, particularly um, with respect to infectious disease. We saw a couple of nasty COVID outbreaks in um, um, mental health um, facilities during the pandemic. So we've looked at that in some detail. And the the evidence is pretty strong that, you know, you really not, not only is it desirable to be offering these care models to people to give them that choice but it's actually um, a better more effective model of care.
0: So what we're seeing then is a kind of triaging out or stepping down situation. um, I'm very proud of the fact that I advocated for the Higgins Residential Eating Disorder, which is a concept of how to help people with eating disorders not go to hospital or how to help them step down out of hospital um, um, and and trying to keep people out of that hospitalised setting and and get them back into the home setting. But when you're talking about transitioning certain conditions more quickly out of hospital, what you're saying is, Um, because if we're rethinking about hospital without walls, then there's this capability for healthcare system to stretch into the home environment and there's not the um, difficulties with regards to um, the convenience of being at home. And telehealth, I suppose, has provided that because now doctors, instead of saying, you have to come to me... Um, people now understand the convenience of a doctor picking up the phone and reaching out to the patient so it's much more patient-centric I presume there are other sort of technological supports that also enable this to be done both more efficiently but also more effectively um, but also sending physiotherapists and occupational therapists Mm -hmm. to the home environment is is that correct Mm -hmm. so it's one a willingness of the system to think outside the walls of the hospital two use of you know monitoring and technology so that they can be monitored at home and then three providing uh, in-home wraparound services for the for the particular care that they need—that's not high-level care in a hospital that can require monitoring in the home and in, in sort of community
1: environment—is that kind of a summary? Yeah, look, that's absolutely right, and I think we've seen a surge of um, technologies that was really hastened during the pandemic. So, that, for example, the quality of video calls, much like the one that we're we're having at the moment, has greatly improved. And, you know, this is something early in the pandemic, the health funds worked very quickly to um, move as many allied health services as possible to to video calls. And we've seen that in um, mental health, for example, this has made a huge difference, particularly to people in rural and remote communities that have been trying to access mental health services. It's made a huge difference to, you know, the workflow of psychiatrists who can now, you know, it's a a very workforce-constrained area, but they can now see more patients as a consequence of um, the improved technology. Um, You you mentioned remote monitoring. There are all sorts of technologies now that can connect to a, a smartphone so that if it's properly set up and managed, we're even able to manage some people with quite a few chronic conditions and people that are quite frail in their own environment, which is also going to become very important as the pressure on aged care facilities and the expense of training people in that setting continues to increase so we're very fortunate to be living in this time but you know there are a few impediments and that is that we still are not able to organize the economics of our sector around these new technologies and around the patient our economics is very centered on institutions and you know that's where the funding tends to get drawn to under our regulatory settings. And furthermore, and this is one thing that you and I are both familiar with, is that um, clinicians are taught and trained in institutions. And, you know, you can become very dependent on that environment. So what we're suggesting in the report is that we actually uh, work on ways to economically incentivize clinicians, be they, be they nurses, medical specialists or allied health professionals, GP specialists, we actually incentivize them to learn the techniques and the technologies to be able to work in some of these remote environments out, um, and, and these uh, home environments and be able to use the technology um, to, you know, its greatest effectiveness. Mm.
0: And we don't definitely saw through COVID, you know, people don't have to fight through traffic to sit in outpatients' rooms for you know, three mm. hours wait to see a doctor i'm guilty as a doctor myself having people having
1: to travel from the countryside um to come see well, katie women know. women with uh, and, I, and i don't mean to interrupt but like the people that drive the uptake of private health insurance being professional women they won't do it that's the reason they've got private health insurance they cannot they do not have a dollar or a second to spare you've got double income households trying to pay the mortgage They're not going to sit in outpatients all day. Correct. On the off chance that, you know...
0: As you said, there are just a different model that want more efficiency. Um, I, I remember when I was doing my pregnancy here in Chicago and I used to, you know, seeing, seeing the clinic in next door where I was working and I'd say, give me a page when it's my turn. <laughs> it has to be the most efficient way so I can stay at work. So there's so much more pressure on people to be um, productive and this is keeping people productive. I, I will say with telehealth, the one thing I think is a great disappointment to me is that it, it meant to be mostly Video and as it's turned out, it's about eighty percent. I think that last last figures um, telephone based, and I, um, I I believe that we should be advocating very strongly for a face to face. There's been arguments people older people don't know how to use a technology, which to me just reeks of um, silliness, um, and it's clearly something that um, provides more um, eyes on the patient for the the, the treating clinician and um, and and provides more surety that the, the care that they're getting is the right care as well, and it also. Um, with any issues of potentially, um, uh, you know, routing that might be going on in the system, so I'm a big advocate for it to be mostly um, video based if at all possible. When we talk about telehealth,
1: but yeah, look, you... and I don't think I don't think I disagree with that. I mean, there's a lot you can tell by looking at someone. You know, a lot of you know the practice of of medicine is pattern recognition, and you know, in, and if you're not seeing somebody um, over a prolonged period, it you know you can. Miss stuff and make mistakes and that's why we do with these models of care we are having people visit the home a lot of them do depend on an initial thorough consultation which is face to face yes um and so i but and i think some of the arguments that you've mentioned about people not using the technology i mean really that is not borne out by the research that people don't know how to use the technology unless you you know you're, you're dealing with people in their 80s um, smartphone use is so pervasive in the community, um, you know, with all the channels that are available through, through smartphones. Um, but that's just not an argument that stacks up. So it seems to me that
0: the government's a bit of heavy here. Um, and your report says that um, um, by 2031 to 32, um, the 3 million Australians over the age of 75, that's 10% of the population, with an increase of 17% of private healthcare use with, an, an extra 1 million patient days at private hospitals required and a commensurate increase in pressure on the public system of about 50 increase. So that means there's got to be um, either a whole lot more hospitals built Um, or a new model of care. And and we know that hospital is an expensive way to provide um, care. And as we've been saying, it's also not necessarily the most efficient or or necessarily the most effective. So for the private health industry to be uh, innovating in this space, which in my view is one of its key characteristics, I understand um, companies like Medibank Private have been trialling um, some really interesting new models of care uh, in order to do this. But it seems to me that the Private Health Insurance Act 2007 may need to um, uh, be reconsidered with regards to restriction of funding um, with regards to out-of-home uh, and out-of-hospital care. Out of hospital care. What, what's your view on what sort of legislative heavy lifting needs to be done? And secondly, how can uh, the federal and state authorities collaborate better with regards to not shifting costs between their different systems?
1: Yeah, look, I think I might tackle the second part of this, and that is that the archetypes that we've identified, and the types of hospital, part of hospital care that we've identified, apply equally to the private and public hospital sector, whether they be um, hospital avoidance or hospital substitution. Um, So we actually, you know, do have some quite significant relationships with the public sector as well in terms of helping them achieve some efficiencies in this area. And it's not just, you know, the crowding in bricks and mortar hospitals and, you know, the um, expense of treating people in bricks and mortar hospitals that we need to consider. Katie, it's also, you know, the restrictions on the workforce that we're dealing with at the moment and that we have to... more out of our health and medical workforce than we have in the past but in a way that doesn't totally burn people out and I think that some of these technologies do enable us to do that if they're if they're properly implemented Um, you've talked about the private health insurance act 2007 um, and this is the one of the problems that we have with that legislation is that it was very prescriptive about the types of workers that we were able to fund to provide out of hospital care and it's now out of date. So you know the it, it actually has a list in it of the types of people that um, are able to provide out of hospital care that's basically restricted to allied health professionals, it excludes nurses, it excludes mental health peer support workers that are now a big part of uh, the mental health workforce. It excludes GPs who are coordinating care in the community. So it really is um, quite a barrier to us achieving um, value for money for consumers by using these new settings. And so we're working pretty hard to get that list removed and to get this area freed up a little bit. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, the previous government, Greg Hunt, as the Minister of Health, introduced quite a few new innovations that um, seems to have supported uh, the uptake by private health insurance, including increasing the age dependence can be on a family's private health from I think it was 25 to 31, um, and, and some other factors that have helped get people through the, what you might call a valley of death where they move from being a child mm-hmm. to being independent, but in those early years possibly get yes. not toward private health insurance. Um, but also the uh, gold
1: bro- uh, silver and bronze um, categories.
0: H- how's that you know playing out to
1: five health insurance? Well, look, there's a, there's a couple of things there. And I think firstly, the um, dependence policy of allowing people to be on their parents' policy into age thirty one or for anyone for, a, for with a disability on their parents' policy at age sixty five. That has made a difference, actually. There are now a lot of people who have kept up or taken a private health insurance under that policy that are funded by the bank of mum and dad. And I think um, that's down to both the economic pressures on people in their 20s, but also some of the conditions that people in their 20s need private health insurance for. And the big driver in, in that age group is firstly mental health. So mental health is is a big reason why both men and women in their 20s are use private health insurance. Um, The second one is around reproductive health, Um, although that's much less of a driver these days. um, It's still, you know, you've still got people in their 20s who are trying to access some quite expensive treatments like IVF and their parents are helping them out with that as well, presumably with the goal of having grandchildren, which, you know, I think is terrific. So... um, But it is funded by the Bank of Mum and Dad and that um, policy change did enable that uh, a little bit of an intergenerational wealth transfer there and we've seen some quite strong uptake in a younger age group as a consequence of that change, which is good because overall um, people in that age group tend to claim a lot less than people in their 70s, which is important for the sustainability of the system, which is not risk rated where we charge the same um, to people... um, regardless of whether they're sick or well. Um, You mentioned the gold, silver, bronze, basic tiering. This is something that's made it easy for consumers to choose the most appropriate health insurance product for them. And this is something that um, um, the ACCC in particular and um, really felt was quite an important thing to do to make it easier for um people to uh to select the right product for their stage of life. It's come with some challenges and I think one thing that we might need to work on is some tweaking of um this particular system in terms of you know what uh what goes into each category and how the categories are priced. It's quite challenging as you can imagine the price of gold hospital cover has increased a lot because people are at high risk, are self selecting into that category. Um, So we might need to look at that again. And there's been quite a lot of pressure from some of the medical groups that feel that um, this is leading to their particular treatment area being discriminated against on price. And and certainly, you know, we've seen that reaction from obstetrics and gynecology um, and from some of the surgical specialties. So I think there are, Whereas the system is consumers initially have really liked the product hearing. I think there are some financial and actuarial challenges as well as some challenges on the clinical side that we're going to have to address. Um, but you know, bearing in mind, this is a complex system and we can't introduce anything without um constant review. We've got to be able to keep up with um technological change, change in medical practice, but also the economic circumstances that our members find themselves in.
0: Well, it's been fantastic speaking with you this morning. We've got one minute to ask my last favourite question of my guest, and that is, um, what do you hope for the next 100 years, Rachel?
1: Well, look, I think we're going to be living a lot longer. And what I want to see is both men and women living longer, but in fantastic health, um being productive almost until the day they die, and uh, engaging the community until the day they die. And I think that's absolutely possible with the technologies that we have at the moment. but it's up to it's up to us to uh, to be able to work together and work together with our government and financial institutions to work out how to deliver that. And it's not about us as clinicians or people that work in institutions. It's about us as people in the community who are accessing healthcare. It's about patients really, um, or people that don't identify as sick, but that are using the health system to keep well. So that's really what I'd like to see in a nutshell
0: that runs pretty well into your vision of better cover better access better care so thank you so much for joining me um, today it's been wonderful speaking to you it's been an absolute delight and you've been so informative thank you
1: it's a pleasure Katie reach out
0: to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from join me Dr Katie Allen on an apple a week hopefully you'll learn as much as I do